Hello, Doobie listeners. It is 2.50 p.m. on Saturday, February the 8th. Is it the 8th? It's February the 8th. And I'm sitting here at Denison University in the Shepherdson College room in the fourth floor of the Slater Union where I broadcast this show every week. With me this week is my guest, Imani Congdon. Imani is a student here at Denison and a major in classics. And? Oh, God, you never remember. It's English writing. I never do remember that, but that's weird because I do associate you with being a writer. Yeah, I know. Anyway, we're here to talk about classics as an academic field because in the past, and I apologize for this, Imani, I have dismissed classics as being stuffy and purely academic, and you've corrected me on that a number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, we're here this week to talk about classics and its role in academia, and which is something that you yourself have described as being somewhat toxic in the past, Imani. Um, I might be misinterpreting your words a little bit. No, I think you're not necessarily wrong. Um, I came to classics pretty quickly. Um, when I was about 17, um, I spent my teenage years in Oberlin, and both of my parents, having gone to the college and my dad now working for the college, I interacted with the college a lot. And when I was a senior in high school, um, Tom Van Norwick, who had been a really prominent member of the classics department at Oberlin, since my dad was a classics student at Oberlin, um, was retiring. And they had a series of symposia Mm. to celebrate the fact that he was leaving on a variety of topics. Um, And I went to one. And that was kind of the day that I decided that was what I wanted to do. I'd I'd been looking at a bunch of stuff um, just vaguely as general majors as I was thinking about what I wanted to do in college, and classics had kind of sparked my interest because I knew my dad had been in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do very much admire my dad as an academic figure, but I hadn't really had the opportunity to engage with it in any sort of formalized setting. And once I had, I realized that that was kind of what I wanted to do. I think that I was a little charmed at first, mostly by the fact that Oberlin is a setting that kind of requires a lot of diversity in its classrooms or in its symposia, just because of the people who have gone there in the past. Mm -hmm. And this was a lot of alumni, so there were a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. Um, Interestingly, one of the first things that I was exposed to as a classics discussion had a lot of black women in it. Um, And I was kind of duped by that. Uh, because it's not at all the norm, but it was the norm within the setting. And I, I think part of that, uh, part of the initial draw was how many people from how many different perspectives were talking. And as I came to Denison, which is not Oberlin mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and I hate Oberlin, um, <laughs> which is a side note, and I, I, do, I don't really want to get read for that, but I have a lot of opinions on that that no, I will get that's, into. No, that's okay. I think since we're broadcasting this on Denison Radio, that's oh, yeah, a perfectly no. fine thing to say. Can I backtrack for a minute? Yeah, please. Since I, I personally did not go into college with any knowledge of what classics were, mm-hmm. can you define classics for our listeners? Um, I think classics, at least as I engage with it, is the study of the ancient Mediterranean world. I think in America and most of Western Europe, it generally means the study of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I personally am a Hellenist, which means that I study primarily ancient Greece, mm-hmm. and I'm like a, a very specialized Hellenist mm-hmm. because I study material culture from the fifth century BCE within mm-hmm. ancient Athens mostly. Um, and that's the thing you you can be that kind of specialist, but it generally means um, the ancient Mediterranean, specifically ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Um. Sorry, I didn't know you were deferring back to me. No, I okay. So yeah, picking up where I um, where I cut in earlier, you were contemplating majors, and mm-hmm. you attended the symposium. Um, yeah, and you said that duped you. Why did that dupe you? Because I came here and I realized I was uh, I had kind of entered into classics at a very unique point. Mm-hmm. Um, most classics discussions don't look like that room looked like. Um, and coming here, which uh, <laughs> this is a very... I, I like to say that Denison is kind of the right-wing liberal arts institution, mm-hmm. um, which in a lot of ways it is. You know, A lot of liberal arts institutions are kind of abandoning notions of Greek life and admitting the same white guy over and over again, and Denison has not really done that in a very substantive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I hate Oberlin, but one thing that they did kind of well for me, um, or one thing that I admire about the way they run, rather, mm-hmm. is the fact that, you know, they don't have Greek life. The diversity of their school, it's waned a little bit in recent years, but still compared to uh, the vast swaths of other liberal arts institutions that are in the Midwest, and specifically Ohio, it is far more diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did live with a very specific college experience until I actually came to college, (laughs) and I came here and I was like, oh wow, this this is very white, which is fitting because it is in fact very white outside it's very snowy Um, today but you know it's an apt metaphor Mm -hmm. so i come here and um you know i like to think i I like to think that i'm still pretty good at what i do and um i I was always a classics major i was never anything else Mm -hmm. i came in declared and i think i was the only uh i might have been the only person who came in declared that year i'm not sure um i'm not trying to claim that at all i am I, I definitely don't have the stats for that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so I started off taking a lot of classics courses. I started off in Latin and ancient Greek literature and society, and um, I, I took an English course and a science course because I was trying to go for GEs too, but like at very least half of my schedule was um, not only in the same department but also with the same professor. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that the discussions that I was having did not look like that first discussion. And mm-hmm. that's fine because, you know, you're getting introduced to academia and you're realizing that it can be a wide range of things and not necessarily what you idealize your field to be. But it's also kind of uh, disquieting in a way to go into a room and look very different than most of the people having these discussions and come from a very different background. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is very interesting to me is that a lot of people who come to the field in undergrad and don't really go too much further with it in you know, graduate school uh, 
a lot of those people came to it from Percy Jackson. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I have opinions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's all right if you, if you want to share them. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should say our official station policy is no political, religious, or product endorsement. But we don't have anything against speaking out against an idea you don't like. Okay, um, I'm, I'm very vehemently not um, a proponent of any of Rick Reardon's stuff. So I don't think that this counts as an endorsement at all. No, I, 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 I imagine not. Um, I think I do have some uh, ideas that kind of border on solutionary, but not necessarily uh, solid endorsements in any way. And again, I'm, I'm still an undergraduate and I don't claim to be uh, an in-depth expert on any of this stuff. I think that I know a decent bit, but a lot of this is just opinions Mm -hmm. and observation. Um, Although some of it is kind of fact, and this is the fact. Um, Rick Reardon is not very good. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, he's not. (laughs) Something right in there name dropping. I, yeah, um, and I stand by it. Here's the thing. I have absolutely no problem with the fact that Uh, Well, that's not true. I understand that for a lot of people, Rick Reardon is kind of an integral part of their childhood. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I think a lot of queer kids come to Rick Reardon because um, people who are growing up queer and trying to find an identity within that um, tend to look for things that go outside of the most heteronormative aspects of day to day. Mm -hmm. And I think that being introduced to a culture that had gods that were so ridiculous and, (laughs) um, really, really gay in some ways is, is really interesting and it resonates with them in an interesting way. And I, I, you know, as a little queer kid myself, I can't really fault anybody for finding refuge in something that feels more like them than the people that they encounter in their day-to-day. So that's my disclaimer there. People who came to Rick Reardon who saw a part of themselves or who found comfort in it, I'm not trying to drag you. I understand that. No, I, I think that comes across. Um, I will say, not, and not to interrupt the issue, but since mm. you brought it up and I don't want to lose it, oh, what's your favorite story about the gods being ridiculous? Mm. Okay, so this is not this is a story, but it also has to do with my research. Okay, um, perfect. We can tie that in. Okay, so Zeus, at a certain point, had an, uh, I think the official stance is, attendant named Ganymede, mm-hmm. who was, you know, a little mortal prince, and mm-hmm. Zeus was just like, wow, he's hot, and <laughs> was just like, hey, you want to be my cupbearer, and like, stole him away. <laughs> um, that's the very, 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 very abridged version of it, but um, it, it's not necessarily my favorite story, but... I go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art a decent bit to stare at pottery. Um, Not MoMA? Metropolitan Museum of Art. I don't know the different Oh, my God. Museum of Modern Art is MoMA. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. I've even been to MoMA. Dear God, Adam. I I don't go to New York that Okay. I can tell. Um, (laughs) By the everything about me? Yes. I didn't. How do you think I did when I was in New York class? Badly. (laughs) That is correct. Don't talk about my city. Okay. Okay. Um, I go to the museum... Um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art a decent bit Mm -hmm. um, because they are in a lot of ways the museum that is closest to us with the most diverse collection of classical art. Um, Cleveland's pretty good but the Met has just 
an ungodly number of pots. Um, so I think two years ago was the first time that I did a research uh, trip to the Met. And I came across this pot that was really, really beautiful. Um, it was very, well, comparatively small, relatively simple. It didn't have a lot on it. Really like simple black glaze with red figures and it mm -hmm. fell within my time frame it fell mm -hmm. within the 5th century BCE um, which is great for me because this is what I'm looking at and on the side that is facing outward it has uh, a depiction of Zeus Okay. and I'm like oh phenomenal I read the placard and it says Zeus and Ganymede so I'm like oh so Ganymede must be on the other side it is up against a wall but it is also towards the edge of the cabinet. And um, I, I try to get up against the wall to see the depiction of Ganymede because it's interesting to me. And I can't really see it, but the one thing that I can see is that Ganymede is holding in his hand a rooster. <laughs> so for that reason and that reason alone, that pot became my favorite pot in the Met. What happened later... This year I went back to the Met. I'm mm -hmm. actually going back again in March, apparently. Um, which I, I didn't know it was which the Met. Is fine. I don't know why I thought it was MoMA. It's I fine. knew they were different museums. Look, you can embarrass yourself on your own show. I can't. It's fine. And it's have fine. Exactly. You're never fine. more than this episode. <laughs> this is great. It's fine. Okay. Um, so um, this year I go back to the Met, and obviously I have to revisit my favorite pot. It's not really pertinent for my research anymore because a lot of what I do is symposiatic vessels, and this is an opera, um, which is not symposiatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, that gets into some very specific stuff, and I'm sorry. So I go back and I look at uh, Ganymede holding his rooster. Uh -huh. um, and I, you know, love that. Just it's, it's always a fun time to see. But again, it's still up against a wall. I still can't see the full depiction. I know Ganymede is there. He's, you know, I can see one of his yeah. hands. But I don't know what he's doing other than holding a rooster. Uh -huh. So I decide a couple of days ago that I'm just going to look it up. I'm going to look up the picture because the Met has really extensive online catalogs. Mm -hmm. um, I go to the pot and I see Zeus and I go to the next picture, which has the obverse. And I realize that he is not only holding a rooster, he has a hoop and a stick. And it's not my favorite story, <laughs> but certainly it is my favorite piece of ancient material culture because... The ancient Greeks were hilarious, just genuinely hilarious. That's awesome. Uh, and the fact that that, you know, that continuity still exists is phenomenal, and I enjoy it deeply. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm debating in my head what of what you just said will be aired. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if we can get away with that terminology for He's a rooster. He's literally holding... A rooster. But that oh, that's I mean Very technically what it, what it is. No, I, I think I think anyone with ha with half a brain would know that. I just Yeah, yeah. but still. I don't know. Um Alright, let me ask another question then for the sake of Avoiding offending anyone. Um, so you, uh, I, I remember we, we've, we've talked in the past, you and I are friends in real life. Um, Debatable. Acquaintances? Yeah, sure. We've worked together. <laughs> we are co-workers. Um, we are co-workers. Um, and I remember this summer you, you, um, you were talking to me about different translations of books like The Odyssey. 
Yeah. Um, and how they've changed over time. Could you speak a little more to that? I think that one of the main qualms that I have with the way that classics operates now is that it fails to recognize how much of what we know is um, known through a very, very thick lens. And that especially applies to languages. Um, I think that the understanding that we have now of Latin and Attic Greek Mm -hmm. is decent. But I think that it's also worth noting that people who engage in classics as a discipline and people who adopt classics as their main discipline um, have historically been incredibly exclusionary Mm -hmm. um, for several centuries, which means that this language has become biased in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It has skewed towards um, the, well, the the patriarchal and the white and the heteronormative Mm -hmm. and... um, the ways that we understand the things that we are reading because we can translate them because we have learned these languages because we have passed these languages on is very much it, it's to say that we understand the purest forms of these languages because people have spoken them non-natively for hundreds of years is frankly negligent mm-hmm. um, and to say that we need the language to be able to do anything in the field mm-hmm. I think is also negligent I am not a linguist. Mm-hmm. Um, I took Latin. I was not very good at it. Um, and it. I think the main problem that I had with learning it was that it is no longer a conversational language because it can't be, because there are no native speakers of Latin. And I think the same thing can be said of Attic Greek. Um, and the thing about translations is that they, too, tend to skew towards the white and the patriarchal and the heteronormative mm-hmm. because of all of this. If the language that you are speaking has been tainted by exclusionary practice for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, then how do you know you're reading what you're reading? Especially in the last few years, I think that a big push against all of this um, has come from the people in the discipline who are not male and white and straight. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there have definitely been non-white male straight people who have been translating in the past, um, and there have definitely been non-white male straight classicists in the past. Um, but um, Derek Walcott is one that comes to mind immediately. His, um, his Omeros is an incredible adaptation of ancient epic and Homer specifically. Um, but even he had his own issues with, uh, you know, language and the patriarchy. But I think in recent years, a lot of people have pushed for, um, translations done by women, especially, and translations done by people of color. And I think the most notable that has come out within the last couple of years is Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey, which uh, I briefly owned two copies of because everybody saw it and was like, oh, wow, this is the first mainstream publication of The Odyssey that was translated by a woman. Imani will love this. And everybody got me a copy, (laughs) which is great. I love that people around me know me. Um, And it's a really, really well done translation, Mm -hmm. too. It's very contemporary. In a lot of ways, it's very easy to understand, whereas, you know, more academic copies um, and translations... Fagels is a really popular translation, and it's, it's used pretty widely here, too. Um, but 
the problem with Fagel's, and he tends to be my favorite, so it's 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 a very specific problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with his translation is that it's very dense, mm-hmm. and it's meant to kind of stay true to the language of the actual text, um, which is hard to do in English, really hard to do in English. But um, he tries really hard, and he's pretty good at it. But that makes for a very dense read, um, which means that people who don't do this uh, for a living, well, not like I make much of a living now, but (laughs) people who don't try to do this professionally um, have a bit of a hard time getting any sort of emotional depth from it mm-hmm. because it's you have to wade through the, the muck of the language first um, which is not to say that it is not a useful translation it's just thick yeah um, going off of that you I'm going off of conversations we've had in the past so I hope my listeners will excuse me for saying that you've spoken about mm-hmm. um, I vaguely remember you talking about another problem of uh, translations being that they tend to skew towards a monotheistic idea of things whereas oh, these yeah. wouldn't have been written in that context Ted Hughes man Ted Hughes <laughs> okay so a lot of the the other side of the problem that I just mentioned about, you know, straight white men mm-hmm. writing most of the translations mm-hmm. that um, have entered the mainstream within the last several hundred years um, is that they tend to look at these texts and say, ah, because they belong to the tradition that I, as a writer, belong to, by the transitive property of straight white manliness, this now belongs to me. Uh, so... Ted Hughes did a, a very bad, in my opinion, translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is meant to be updated. I say updated with some very aggressive air quotes. Um, like, he, he, at a certain point, says, when he's telling the story of Semele, who is Dionysus's mother, mm-hmm. um, and she was a mortal woman... Uh, who asked at a certain point to see Zeus in his full godly glory uh, when Hera snuck down and was just like, ah, maybe you're having an affair with just some random dude who's mm-hmm. saying he's Zeus to... Um... <sighs> I can't say that. Uh, <laughs> I can't what, say that. Uh, what an interview we have planned. <laughs> oh, truly. Um, so to, to, to romance you. Um, I can say that. I yes, can absolutely ro- say romance that. Romance isn't a dirty word. I know, but that... Mm, I, I can <laughs> tell where you were going. Okay. So, Semele asks to see Zeus um, essentially naked of his disguises okay. and just naked in general. And he, being an idiot, has already sworn the most solemn oath that he can, that he would give her whatever she wanted. Um, and now he's trying to backtrack, but she's holding firm. And he swore... Um, because he's an idiot, and that's 99.9% of how the gods get into problems in the first place. Mm-hmm. They make odes before they know what they're swearing to. Um, Zeus reveals himself to her, and the way that Ted Hughes translates this is the nuclear blast of his naked impact. And here's the thing. <sighs> Ovid didn't know what nuclear anything was. Exactly. Ted Hughes is writing from a very... 20th century, wow, we've just had a lot of wars, and wow, we're going to keep having a lot of wars perspective. Because of the nuclear stuff. Yes, because of all of the nuclear stuff. (laughs) Um, 
and he is writing for an audience that's familiar with that. And on the one hand, sure, that's something that's going to appeal to a lot of people and therefore is going to be well-received by a lot of people because it's something that they can resonate with. I don't think that that's the primary purpose of translating these things. I think that that kind of behavior is um, presumptuous in the extreme and disrespectful in the extreme because it assumes ownership. And Ted Ted Hughes did not... Ted Hughes did not own Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, mm, that's, again, a really big problem that I have with Rick Riordan. We're going back to it. We are. It seems as though we are. Um, so with that, I have another question that would keep us away from um, American cultural appropriation of no, classic Lord. myths. Um, but this is the last one I can think of, and then we can talk about cultural appropriation all we want. Yes. Um, okay. You mentioned that in, you've once mentioned to me that in, at least in Greek myths, there are three types of female characters. This is getting into um, my own uh, visual cultural theory, mm-hmm. um, which is very rudimentary and in its early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, but the theory that I have kind of developed in over the course of my research in the last two or three years is that, um, generally speaking, within classical depictions of myth, especially within the 5th century BCE. Um, There tend to be three kinds of women depicted. Um, And that primarily refers to women in uh, visual depictions, but it can also extend to things like theater, uh, maybe more loosely literature and poetry, but um, yeah, I work a lot with pots, so... Mm -hmm. Um, those three women are the respectable, the useful, and the other. Mm-hmm. And the respectable tends to fall into the category of, um, you know, a certain type of Olympian goddess, um, you know, somebody who embodies the role of a mother or a dutiful daughter or um, a steadfast version. So you have people like Hestia and Hera and Demeter. Um, Two of them are mothers. Um, Two of them are matriarchs. And Hestia, uh, you know, despite never marrying, is, you know, a steadfast caretaker of the hearth. Mm -hmm. She is the goddess of the hearth. Mm -hmm. So she falls into that category of respectable. And typically when you tend to see the the respectable woman portrayed, she is um, she is dressed in long garb. Mm-hmm. She is usually very covered up. Um, she is almost always upright, which um, in visual depictions, uh, especially on pottery, if you are depicting somebody who is meant to be intimidating or monstrous, they are hunched or in a battle position, which is very angular, very... Um, very wide stanced and that's generally not how the respectable woman is depicted Mm -hmm. Um, it's just very stoic Mm -hmm. Um, the useful woman is somebody who falls into the position of a support role in a lot of ways so that would be something like the hetairai which were in very very simple terms prostitutes but they were more than that. They, you know, they were often well versed in poetry and literature and 
the like, mm-hmm. um, but they did in a lot of ways serve a supporting role to a very patriarchal system. So um, this also encompasses slave women, um, servant women, things like that. Um, And then the other encompasses women who fell outside of the role of supportive to the patriarchal ideals of 5th century Athens in particular, Mm -hmm. because that's the time frame I'm working in. So a lot of what I tend to focus on when I talk about the other is Amazons. Um, visually speaking, the Amazons are never really depicted as monsters. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because a lot of mythology tends to exaggerate the, the look of the Amazon. Um, there are certain versions of Amazon stories that say that one of their breasts was cut off Mm -hmm. so as to make archery easier. Um, very rarely are Amazons depicted with one breast. Um, a lot of stories say that they were really, like, scarily tall. They're never really depicted as giants. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, when you look at pots that depict Amazonomachy, which is, you know, war of the Amazons, mm-hmm. they just look like women in armor. Mm-hmm. And I think that the interesting thing about that if you're operating within the time frame of the 5th century BCE in ancient Athens specifically, um, is that Athens has just gone through a lot. They had to deal with the Persian invasion, which was devastating mm-hmm. to the region. Um, Persians burned the original Acropolis and the original temple of Athena. Um, they had to essentially rebuild their city and rebuild their civic identity after they won this war, which is why during the century, you see a surge in popularity of very very spectacle-oriented depictions of the citizenship and what it means to be an Athenian citizen. So theater becomes a really interesting and important thing because it that is a civic duty. Mm-hmm. Participating in theater is a civic duty. You don't really go to the theater to enjoy yourself, per se, although that might be you know, an, a convenient byproduct. Um, you go to watch important stories and think about important topics and then meditate on those topics and discuss them. Um, so especially when you see somebody like Medea mm-hmm. being depicted on stage, who is, again, a really good example of the other in that she is, in an immediate sense absolutely the respectable Mm -hmm. she was a mother she was a wife she you know she was the best kind of mother in a lot of ways because she gave not one but two sons and then immediately when her husband demonstrates that he is not willing to uphold his end of the marriage oath she gives all of that up she starts killing people Mm -hmm. and notably she kills her two sons Mm -hmm. and nothing happens to her you know that is divine that is retribution she did nothing wrong, technically. Right. So to see somebody who is, in a lot of ways, really monstrous, murdering her children, mm-hmm. um, well, you don't see that. It's just talked about. Right. But to have that depicted in front of you and then to realize that this kind of terrifying thing, um, in a lot of ways, you can't really do anything about because she's in the right is to face kind of the polar opposite 
of the supportive woman to this new idea of Athenian citizenship. And to think about that is kind of terrifying. While we're on the subject of theater and also death Mm -hmm. um, and of um, different kinds of women, where would that place someone like Clytemnestra, who killed her husband, um, but then was ultimately killed by her son. Oh, dear Lord. Um, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a series of plays it is. in and of itself. And, um, oof, um, that is, that's more complicated because there, there are a series of plays that deal with how exactly, um, one is supposed to approach the subject of who is guilty and who is innocent mm-hmm. in that kind of line of violence. And I, I'm not really the person to ask about the specifics of that particular group of plays. The, the House of Atreus is not necessarily my forte, but I will say that I think that one of the main points of that particular group of plays is that at a certain point, you, not, you need to realize that an eye for an eye is not going to work. Um, and I think that the important part of... I, I think that the notable part of... Agamemnon as a play as opposed to Medea as a play Mm -hmm. is that with Medea there is kind of a stop to the violence Jason doesn't really get to retaliate and that's kind of where it stops she commits justifiable homicide and then that's the end of it whereas Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon because Agamemnon killed their daughter so that he could go to Troy and then Orestes then kills Clytemnestra and her lover Mm -hmm. because she killed their father because their father killed their sister, etc., etc., etc. And then this is Iphigenia and the Oresteia. Mm-hmm. Is it Iphigenia or I've heard it pronounced both ways? I do Iphigenia. Okay. Um, well, that's all very interesting, and that gets back to the idea that I'm a theater major, and we're talking about our majors and we did know that. Yes, we did. Um, and, uh, but all right, so let's uh, let's transition away from then uh, ancient culture and talk about the modern world. Um, <laughs> You've talked a lot about these stories as being appropriated, um, obviously by one author in particular, but uh, you also, you've shown me a particularly vulgar presentation that I wouldn't ask you to reenact here. Um, well, that's another reason why I said I wouldn't do the PowerPoint that's most of it, even if I did read it out loud. Um, yeah. I curse a lot. No, I, I've heard it. Um, I yeah. remember it. It was very good, <laughs> but I don't think I could play it here. But you essentially use it as a means of indicting... Um, a certain kind of masculinist um, idea that comes from these stories. Mm-hmm. I, I, I absolutely do. Um, I think that the person that you focus on most in that presentation when you talk about it with me is uh, my condemnation of Jordan Peterson's mm-hmm. particular time, kind of academia mm-hmm. um, and just social idealism. Um, I really don't like Jordan Peterson. And I'll tell you why. Because he starts off in such a decent-ish foundation. Mm-hmm. Some of his ideas I don't necessarily disagree with in the extreme. I think that in certain ways his um, critique of the left is immediately dismissive of any ideas that challenge their own notions of being and doing um, aren't necessarily wrong. Aren't necessarily and, and that's in a very essential way. The minute he starts to elaborate on it, I'm like, ah, you were doing so well. Oh, no. Um, 
I also think that the ways in which he has provided a foundation for a lot of young men who feel as though their foundational ideals of what manhood is supposed to be or was supposed to be when they grew up, um, his, his way of trying to provide a new ideal is not necessarily unuseful. Mm-hmm. I think that... I don't think that the men's rights movement has a leg to stand on, but I do not think... Um, that men should not have a movement, a movement as you know, roles become different, as gender becomes a different idea within Western society specifically, mm-hmm. um, but in general society as well. I think that it is kind of imperative at a certain point for men to introspect and provide themselves with their own kind of ideal because women can't really do that for them. Just like men can't really provide an ideal for women as to what they should be. Um, However, however, (laughs) that is where my sympathy runs absolutely dry. Um, Just because Jordan Peterson tells young men to clean their room and buck up um, does not mean that I think that he's right mm-hmm. foundationally. And I think that my main qualm, my main professional qualm is that he tends to utilize these um, oversimplified ideas of women as kind of fairy tale villains or mythological demons <laughs> to demonstrate the ways in which women, you know, with the surge of feminism have become the scourge of, you know, the man's earth. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I think that that is a gross misuse of something that he very clearly doesn't understand, which is my main qualm with anybody who tries to use mythology to justify their misogyny, or for that matter, their ideas of gender and sexuality if they don't actually study the context in which it exists. And that you know I think that extends to the right as much as it does the left. Um, I think that the right tends to mischaracterize um, classical ideals and ideas as part of their heritage because they subscribe to this notion of the West, Mm -hmm. which is racist, (laughs) you know, pure and simple. (laughs) It's racist. Um, To subscribe to the idea that the West is a thing and that whiteness is inherent within it is to absolutely ignore the ways in which Non-whiteness has supported the continued existence of the foundational texts and art that the West is made up of, and um, that's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to ignore the contributions that Muslim scholars made to preserving ancient literature is horrendous mm-hmm. and disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, even Rushd was an incredible translator. And a lot of what he did was he took ancient Greek texts and he translated them. And, you know, that update into a language that more people understood because, you know, the caliphate was spread throughout the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were studying at Muslim institutions. It, I don't know. I, I, I'm getting at a point where my points are not quite as sharp because I get very angry about this. No, and I, I, I quite appreciate that. It's, it's really infuriating to me that so much of the scholarship is ignored um, for the sake of upholding this myth of continuity of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Also, the Greeks weren't white. Um, but that's a side note. 
So that, that's kind of my issue with how the right deals with this. Um, we are not the Greeks. The Greeks were not us. Mm-hmm. You don't get to use mythology and classical culture to justify um, the racism that you purport now. Mm-hmm. My criticism of the left mm-hmm. is that they also tend to do this mm-hmm. in a very strange way. Um, they tend to also do this thing where they look at things that have historically been touted as belonging to the West and thereby projecting themselves onto these characters. And I don't think that this is necessarily as um, actively detrimental and racist, Mm -hmm. but it definitely perpetuates a system that allows people and in particular white people, to believe that this culture belongs to them. And I think that because in a lot of ways it is more of an individualistic thing, an emotional thing, um, again, I know that a lot of queer people especially have come to Rick Reardon because they see themselves reflected in that kind of, um, that kind of story. It's, it's intriguing to have this, this guy telling you that you know, you could be different because you're special in, like, a, a, a divine way. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be the daughter of Athena. You could be the son of Poseidon. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's wonderful to think that what makes you different is something that is so beyond the realm of our day-to-day troubles. Mm-hmm. But I think that that kind of story gives people this deep emotional defensiveness over their perceived ownership of these kinds of stories when they don't realize that that kind of pervasive understanding of Greek mythology and Roman mythology is allowing for a much more malicious kind of ownership or perceived ownership to continue to live. Um, And I think that the emotions behind it make it harder to root it out. I don't want to deprive people of the things that allow them to survive. But at the same time, ideas like this perpetuate systems of exclusion that don't allow people to survive. <laughs> and it's a lovely little catch-22. Yeah, it seems like it's... Um, and in fact, I wouldn't have thought about it, but hearing you say it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems quite reflective of a lot of modern-day American pop culture. In some ways, absolutely. I keep seeing this um, this Tumblr post that somebody made that was just, you know, and I'm generalizing here. I'm, I'm really oversimplifying, but essentially no, they were arguing that um, something that they really wanted to happen in America, especially, is for more movies to be made about Greek myths, depicting Greek myths. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the stories are dope, and yeah. that would be so cool. No, (laughs) absolutely not. Oh, God. And I I feel like this is something that we should have learned by now. There's so much, there are so many movements towards recognizing the ways in which we have appropriated cultures, especially within Hollywood. Mm -hmm. There are so, call-out culture has created so many opportunities for people to look at movies that have been made, especially within the last 20, 30 years, Mm -hmm. and be like, that's so racist. Why did you do that? Mm-hmm. But for some reason, there hasn't been as much of a push for that on movies that depict classical figures. 
One really good example of that is Alexander. Alexander. Oliver Stone's Alexander. I haven't seen it. It's terrible. Okay. (laughs) It's awful. I love that you're just name dropping. Oh, please. I Um, want Oliver Stone to hear this. I do. I'm not sure I do. (laughs) But I also, I I don't think anything you've said is grounds for litigation either. Look, Adam does not share any of my views. No, Um, I'm a facilitator. He is absolutely just a facilitator. If anybody is to be sued for this, please come after me individually. My name is Imani Congdon. It's me. It's all me. Oliver Stone, your movie sucked. (laughs) I stand by it. Do you like any Oliver Stone movies? This is the one that I've had to do the most focus on, so I'm I'm not going to talk about his movie career because I feel like that would be unfair. I feel like I don't really have grounds to talk about him as a filmmaker in general. I absolutely have grounds to talk about him as the person who made Alexander. It sucked. Well, let me explain to you why I hate him. I think that in a lot of ways it is the best one could do in terms of just bare bones depicting the journey that Alexander took from from Macedonia Mm -hmm. to Asia and to Babylon back to Babylon. Um, I think that that's a very hard thing to encompass within a movie, mm-hmm. even one as long as Alexander. How long was it? <sighs> it's over two hours. I know that. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, it, that's a lot to ask mm-hmm. of a movie. So bare bones without considering any of the casting decisions, any of the exaggerated battles, any of the Orientalism, it tries really hard to have a very long timeline condensed in a way that is compelling. Mm -hmm. And in that and that alone, it kind of succeeds. However, (laughs) every single one of the Greeks and the Macedonians is British, American, or Irish. Oh, that's always fun. And the most noticeable casting decision within that category of Greek and Macedonian men is Colin Farrell, who goes through the entire movie with his own accent, which is um, so Irish. So Irish. So incredibly Irish. It's insane. <laughs> so Alexander is now an Irish man. <laughs> Love that. He's also blonde as the day is long. And it, it's just bad. Also, Jared Leto plays Hephaestion, who is in real life. Uh, Alexander's lover. Okay. And there's not enough gay, which is a personal (laughs) complaint. You know, there's a lot of tension that very much suggests some gay. Okay. But there's not enough gay. Because the thing is, the Macedonians were really gay. (laughs) And they needed to better portray that. And that's just a personal complaint. That's just a side note. Also, (laughs) Hephaestion, played by Jared Leto, plays a lot... Just wears a lot of eyeliner throughout the entire (laughs) film. It's just a character trait at a certain point. But my main qualm is the way that Oliver Stone depicts the women in Alexander. Okay. The person who plays his mother, Mm -hmm. and Olympias, is her own incredibly interesting historical figure. She, by Macedonian standards, was kind of a barbarian. Mm -hmm. Um, She was kind of terrifying Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. She was a cult member, um, which has a very different connotation then than it does now. Of course. Um, You know, she wasn't a Jonestown kind of cult member. Okay. Um, You know, mystery cults and ecstatic cults um, had a lot more to do with just... 
very devout and specific ritual. Mm -hmm. Um, Wasn't Sophocles in some sort of a cult? A lot of really notable authors and playwrights and bards, well, I say bards, um, were in some way or another associated with cult living. There Mm -hmm. were also some philosophers who were cult members. Um, it, It was not the most uncommon thing in the world, but it, in certain circumstances, was kind of alarming. And the, the Macedonians weren't really big cult people. Um, it was a little too ecstatic for mm-hmm. them. Um, but Olympias was a member of a cult, and she, you know, was very fond of snakes. And the big, the big, the big story with Olympias as to why Philip, her husband, and Alexander's father eventually kind of grew cold towards her. And it's funny in a certain sense, but it's also just kind of stupid, mm-hmm. is he walked in on her one day, like, trying to do the deed, and she's wrapped up in bed with a big old snake. <laughs> oh, she's already doing the deed with a snake. No. And that's terrifying. But the thing is, it's also exaggerated and probably not true. Yeah. I mean, the ancient people were weird. (laughs) The ancient Macedonians especially were weird. But that's probably just an exaggeration, a racist one, Mm -hmm. um, that some Macedonian wrote down to strengthen the claim against Alexander for the throne. He has a barbarian, a non-Macedonian barbarian for a mother. Okay. How could he possibly rule over us? Which a lot of people were doing. At a certain point, Alexander went with his mother out of Macedonia in exile because everybody was just like, you are the son of a barbarian woman. You are not even Macedonian. So he went off to pout in the mountains. It was great, you know? But that, that was kind of the narrative around Olympia. She was this schemer and a, a non-Macedonian barbarian who fornicated with snakes and was terrifying. In reality, even if all of that stuff was true, on top of that, and more importantly, mm-hmm. she was, in her own right, a statesman. Mm-hmm. She, in a lot of ways, ruled over Macedonia mm-hmm. when Alexander was off you know, sword fighting yeah. in Asia. Yeah. She was an acclaimed orator mm-hmm. in her own right. And even though she didn't really get to speak up in public spheres a lot, she wielded an ungodly amount of influence. For somebody who was so actively an enemy in where she lived, she survived for a really long time. She outlived Alexander, which for a Macedonian official, insane. Mm-hmm. A lot of Macedonian kings didn't live past 30 because of the killing? Because of the killing. There was a lot of it. I, um, we're running a bit low on time, which I appreciate. But wait, appreciate. I want to make... I yes, make, please. There is one important point about the casting decision that was made. Yes. That I wanted to make. Yes. The person that Oliver Stone chose to play this woman, mm-hmm. who has ho- so historically been dismissed as this witch. Yes. Like, quite literally, a witch. With a snake thing. With a snake thing is Angelina Jolie. Oh, I don't like that at all. Who, by the way, was about the same age as Colin Farrell when the movie was being shot, and she was playing his mother. Hollywood. Terrifying. And the thing is, it's so very clear that he's leaning into this stereotype of, she's a witch! Right. Because she's the only one who puts on an accent. Right. She's the only one, and it's not an Irish or an English accent. It's this kind of undiscernible, guttural... (laughs) 
pseudo Greek, but also kind of Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. I don't even know accent. Yeah, it's very clear that he is leaning into this idea that you know everybody had of. Olympias, and also that everybody had of Angelina Jolie. You know, if you're coming off of the 90s, she was doing some weird stuff in the 90s. Yeah. Like, he's appealing to that. Yeah. And painting her as this witchy, like, hostile character who's just twisting Alexander the whole time. And that's insanely racist, you know? It, it, oh God, it, oh God, it's a bad movie. So I was going to ask what you thought of 300. Um, We're not talking instead about that. Instead of that. Orientalism, that's what I think of 300. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Uh, instead, I'll ask in the last five minutes we have, is there anything you'd like to add about classics or about uh, yourself or about what you'd like to do in classics or the exclusionary nature oh, of classics? God. In the last five minutes, I, he asks me this. We maybe should have made this a two-parter. <laughs> it's fine. Um... I think that something that I would like to do Mm -hmm. is survive. Okay. Uh, And I was going to say something slightly more uplifting than that, but this feels more honest. Um, (laughs) The fields that I exist in right now and the fields that I'm trying to get into, um, and, you know, especially I say this now uh, as somebody who's about to graduate from undergrad and who's looking at graduate schools and thinking about what I am able to do and what I want to do. Um, the fields that I love, especially material culture and the broader field of classics, are shrinking in a lot of ways. They're dying um, because people don't think that they're particularly pertinent to general academia. Um, not a lot of people are taking interest in them. And honestly, I, I don't necessarily blame them. Um, I think that a big reason for that is that the people who have already gotten into these fields and who have important roles in them are still really exclusionary and gatekeepery mm-hmm. and awful in a lot of ways. Um, and that's, that's really disheartening because I genuinely enjoy what I do. I think that it's one of the things that I am best at. And sometimes I'm not very articulate about that because I get very passionate about it. But I think that, you know, going through undergraduate and getting into graduate, you learn to hone those skills and become better and learn more about them. And I'm I'm not too worried about that yet. But when it comes to facing the actual job market Mm -hmm. and thinking about how attractive I am as a candidate for actual jobs, that require you to have a classics background, Mm -hmm. you know, like material culture work, like collections care when you're dealing with pots or, you know, somebody who writes papers or somebody who does workshops dealing with these materials. I'm not a very attractive candidate as a person, you know, and that's disheartening, but it's something that I had to face really, really early on. Um, I think that, Something that I want to do is be as good as I can so that people don't really have a choice but to acknowledge that I know what I'm talking about. Because at a certain point, I want other people who are better than me at this to be able to get into this field, um, despite the fact that they, too, are not necessarily very attractive candidates to the people who have kind of claimed ownership over this stuff. 
I really thank you for that answer. That's very honest. And I thank you for your time. We spent an hour talking. Um, and I thank you for listening. Doobie listeners, this has been Adam Venrick for The Coffee Hour, along with Imani Congdon, who is a classics and English creative writing double major. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I will see you again next week.